Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, September 24th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, September 27th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 75th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. I want to welcome you to a very special show tonight which includes, as the show's focus, the other 9-11, the U.S. coup that overthrew Salvador Allende in 1973 on September 11th. The lessons that we can learn about the true nature of U.S. foreign policy as it relates to the interests or disinterests of majority populations. But first, just want to thank everybody for supporting Co-op Radio during our membership drive. I wanted to personally thank all of the listeners that called in during the membership drive last week to support bringing light into darkness and co-op radio. I also wanted to include the remarks, so we'll sprinkle this throughout the show, but wanted to start by thanking Jeff. Jeff says, thanks, Pedro. Bringing light into darkness is provocative. Les says, Pedro has been bringing the light since he met Pedro in the mid-1970s. Thanks to co-op, more people get the full Gatos experience. You don't have to agree with them, but you have to hear them. And this from Professor Quee, carry on or else, Pedro. So we'll return to some other comments by supporters of Bringing Light into Darkness at the break. Enjoy the show. Good evening, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP-FM right here in Austin, Texas. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. Today is September 24th, 2021. It's a Friday, and we have a very special guest that we will be introducing shortly. And this show will be replayed in its entirety on Monday, September the 27th, 2021. We have a lot of work to do, and I want to get to it here. So first, an introduction before I introduce our very special guest, Um, Bringing light into darkness celebrates the lessons learned but so well hidden from the 9-11-1973 coup of democratically elected Salvador Allende. We start with the framing of this discussion with just one historical precedent that reveal the real intent of our foreign policy to deceive the U.S. public that it ostensibly serves. On January 1st, 1959, Cuba, led by Fidel Castro and others, successfully culminated their armed struggle with the overthrow of the U.S.-supported Fulgenio Batista dictatorship. As we explained in our Bringing Light into Darkness show on September 6th, 2021, entitled 
means, methods, and discoveries of bringing light into darkness. Our main barometer to determine the democratic tendencies or the anti-democratic tendencies of our U.S. foreign policy is the impact of our foreign policy on the welfare and quality of life of the majority population in that country. That track record of either improving or diminishing the quality of life outcomes for the majority population of that country can be measured apolitically and accurately, and we have done so. Straight out, we ask the question, are you better off now than you were four years ago? If not, is the result of that quality of life decline for the majority population, is that an aberration or instead is that a consistent outcome of our U.S. foreign policy We provided case studies of a large handful of such U.S. foreign policy scenarios over the last 30 years. You can find a short overview of those case examples captured in that September 6, 2021 show by emailing this show at pgatos00 at gmail.com, and we will send you the archived links. But those case studies included Haiti, Honduras, Ecuador, Bolivia, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Ukraine, and Yemen, and the impact of U.S. foreign policy on those nations. The findings were not inconsistent and found in only one or two or four or five, but in fact, in 100% of those countries, the outcomes for the majority population were measurably and significantly worse off, not better off, regarding quality of life issues. We suggest that this fact has been completely avoided by the mainstream media coverage and lack of coverage of these U.S. foreign policy interventions. And that speaks volumes to and is consistent with Dr. Martin Luther King's claim within one year of his death that the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. And Dr. King, what he did not point out was how the U.S. public was so deceitfully propagandized by a lack of information and prejudicial information that was made available. And as a result, the U.S. public was misled and lied to. We also discussed the Pentagon Papers and what it revealed about the real intentions and the real reality in Vietnam for the Vietnamese people and as a result of U.S. policy. We talked about the Afghan Papers that just like the Pentagon Papers showed the U.S. public was getting lied to about Vietnam. The Afghan Papers, which also revealed after 20 years of war in Afghanistan that the United States public was getting consistently lied to by our administrations and by our press, and that any informational whistleblowing that contradicts this narrative, those people are hunted down and they're criminalized such as Julian Assange, which we covered on the show just two weeks ago. So tonight we provide historical examples, precursors, if you will, that will clearly show the means and methods and documentation of the intent of our foreign policy to intentionally misrepresent the truth to our fellow Americans while promoting a living hell for the majority of populations in Chile and in Cuba. And just real quickly, I wanted to indicate that it's not just the result that deceives the American public. In the language of classified memos over the decades, it shows that that was their intent, that they intentionally wanted to mislead the American people. There's some examples I wanted to just show real quick before we move to our main show. On March 17th, 1960, 
President Eisenhower approved a covert CIA plan entitled, quote, A Program of Covert Action Against the Castro Regime, and it included the creation of a responsible and unified Cuban opposition, an exile opposition located outside of Cuba to fight the Castro regime's government. In other words, we created it. It was not there until we created it. The development of a means for mass communication to the Cuban people was the second part of Eisenhower's plan as part of a powerful propaganda offensive. The creation and development of a covert intelligence and action organization within Cuba, which would respond to the orders and directions of the exile opposition that would be controlled by the United States. So you can see they're orchestrating this intrusion into the internal affairs of Cuba in a massive way. And the development of a paramilitary force outside of Cuba for future guerrilla action. And these goals were to be achieved, and here's the language of Eisenhower, in such a manner as to avoid the appearance of U.S. intervention. Basically admitting how deceitful the intent was and how deceitful a standing principle of U.S. foreign policy is to mislead the U.S. public. So on April 6, 1960, and this particular State Department memo was not declassified until 1991, 31 years later. But the memo itself was written by Deputy Undersecretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, Lester Mallory. And it was an admission to the facts contrary to the lies that our policy was feeding the U.S. public. In that memo, it said our policy was seeking to liberate Cuba from a government they despised Yet the memo acknowledged, again, this is 30 years later, we learn this, that the majority of Cubans support Castro. That's what the memo said back in 1960. It was just admitting that, you know, here we are, we're, we're overthrowing a popularly supported government. Number two in the memo, he said there was no effective political opposition. There was no opposition to the revolutionary government of Cuba until we created it and have been pushing it since 1960. The only foreseeable means of alienating internal support for the government of Castro, Mallory's memo goes on, is through disenchantment and disaffection based on economic dissatisfaction and hardship. Therefore, that every possible means should be undertaken properly to weaken the economic life, deny money and supplies to Cuba, to decrease monetary and real wages. To bring about, and this is still a quote, to bring about hunger, desperation, and overthrow of the government. So this is what the longest embargo in world history or blockade in world history is manifested from. It's simply serving the goal of this U.S. policy that's in black and white in 1960. All the lies of we have an embargo because Cuba did this or Cuba did that are simply that. They're lies. This was our plan all along, promote hunger and desperation. So this is what we are about. If we don't get our way, we are actively, as our policy of undermining another nation, trying to bring about hunger, desperation, and that way people will be dissatisfied with that government, and that may lead to the types of political strife that we're trying to promote in a country like Cuba. And then on January 3rd, 1961, in a White House meeting, and this is a meeting that was described by the CIA Director of Plans. This is Richard Bissell, B-I-S-S-E-L-L. This is just weeks before JFK's inauguration of January 20th, 1961. President Eisenhower noted he was prepared to move against Castro, talking about a military intervention, before the inauguration if a really good excuse was provided by Castro. 
But what if Castro provided no such excuse, Abasel went on. Failing that, he said, we could think of manufacturing something that would be generally acceptable. In other words, creating a false pretext. So this is but another example of his Eisenhower willingness, Bissell says, to use covert action specifically to fabricate events to achieve his objectives in foreign policy. So in black and white, it's just basically admitting that every time you hear an accusation, whether it was in Vietnam or whether it was in Cuba, it was very likely a fabricated, unsubstantiated propaganda type of issue. On March 1st, 1962, in an Army memo entitled Possible Actions to Provoke, Harass, or Disrupt Cuba, which outlined a number of ideas that would help create the conditions to justify a military assault on Cuba, the recommendations were to create a social base of counter-revolution that was essentially absent or lacking before we created it. Another tactic was to help drain Cuba of its human capital which is exactly what we did, if you remember, by incentivizing the defection of skilled personnel such as doctors from the island through preferential emigration incentives. Only Cuba and Cubans were allowed that wet foot, dry foot immigration policy, where if you got your foot on U.S. land, you didn't have to go through immigration or nothing. You automatically became a U.S. citizen. Think about what's going on down there at our border right now. We're not letting anybody in. But here, in order to discredit Cuba and encourage people to leave, we gave all of these incentives of sorts, trying to destroy their economy. And then finally, detract from Cuba's social support in order to neutralize its influence in Latin America. So the Cuba's example itself was a big concern. And what we're going to see tonight is we're going to move forward to the 1973 and in the decade before 1973, before Allende was elected president, and the example of how we penetrated and how we affected and overthrew the democratically elected government of Salvador Allende on 9-11-1973. It's kind of like the forgotten 9-11. With that being said, I have the great pleasure of making the acquaintance and wanted to introduce as our special guest tonight, a Chilean-born friend, Ricardo Venegas. Ricardo, thank you for joining us. Hi, Pedro. Thank you so much for the introduction, and uh, I'm I'm pleased to to be here and uh, talking with you. Very good. Well, let me just explain just a, a little bit of your background to our audience. Ricardo is a community mobilizer and cultural translator, and he's currently and been for some time collaborating with an indigenous community in Panama. He got his master's in Latin American studies from the University of Texas at Austin. He was Chilean born, born on the Chilean side of Patagonia where uh, America ends. And he was born at a time in which the coup had just been consummated a couple of years before, 1973. So he grew up under the coup government in Chile. Following his teacher spirit, and always learning, Mr. Venegas left Chile in 2008 after working as a social communicator to travel in Central America and ended up in a long-term commitment with the indigenous community in Panama. Your father was in the military, and you were brought up in this post-coup period and such, kind of, as you described to me, kind of in a bubble like we all are, actually. What caught your attention and and eventually led you to have a different perspective on the whole Chilean experience when it comes to democracy? What kind of radicalized your upbringing, if you don't mind just sharing that? Yeah, no, that's that's great. 
Yeah, as you mentioned, I was born in uh, 1975. I'm uh, 46 years old. I I grew up my childhood during the dictatorship, my youth during the uh, post-dictatorship when we returned to democracy. And yeah, as you mentioned, my my father was part of the um, of the military when the when the coup. So um, I grew up hearing his stories about you know like the tension in the streets the how was the life uh, before pinochet so that information was always in my house on the on the other hand my mother was part of the socialist youth in a very small town in patagonia mm-hmm. so uh, i think that yeah but mostly one side of the story was more tell during the meeting with friends, within with uh, you know occasions that you can talk with people, with um, acquaintances and um, comrades, and um, so yeah. To me, it was like growing, as you said, like growing in a bubble. Mm-hmm. I learned that after when, uh, like, um, I, I have a padrino, a good father. He he found that. The socialist uh, party in uh, in this small town where where my mother was born, and yeah, I knew that something else was there. And I have uh, this like when you see you know big people like from you know when you're a child and uh, you you see these people and you you admire them, but you don't know why. I think that I, that happens to me. And I when I when I grow up when I was a teenager, and we entered again to the democracy game in the country. I was in high school. So you start to have other conversations with friends, other point of view. Punta Arenas is uh, the, the city where I was born. It's a, a strategic military point for Chile because it's right next to the Magellan Strait. Mm-hmm. So... As an example, and as a part of our story, in 1978, we almost get in, into a war with Argentina, claiming territory, uh, you know, in the border, something like that. So I'm saying that the majority of uh, the population was or military or Navy or Air Force, but also a, a, a big population of people that work in the um, government and that kind of jobs. Right. Yeah. Let me ask you, because I wanted to start because your own physical life started after the coup. And then, as you indicated, you were reaching adulthood about the time that that coup was then trying to be transformed into some type of democratic entity of sorts. Right. Like 1990, you would have been about 15 or 17 or something like that. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to go backwards. I mean, because... Salvador Allende, he came to power, he was elected democratically in 1970, or inaugurated in 1970, but he had been running for office before that, and there was a whole movement. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that period of time that brought Allende to the forefront, and then we can then talk about why yeah. the United States saw him as such a great threat. Yeah. But can you talk a little bit about Salvador Allende and the years before he actually became president? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, the, you know, like the process that we leave, uh, it was like you can describe it like reforms during the early 60s. 
revolution with the agenda socialist program. So the 20th century, it's a, it's a very energetic time for Chilean citizens. The, the mass participation in politics was huge. Everyone was mobilized and uh, the ideas were discussed publicly in a civil and democratic manner. You know, like the institutions, or beside the institutions, like, uh, you know, the political parties or the, um, you know, the unions, the big unions, or uh, the institutionalized politics, sorry about that. You you have the micro-politics. Uh, so people get start to organize in, uh, in uh, you know, um, neighborhoods, committees, women's organization. So... Right before agendas get elected, we have in the in the presidency Eduardo Frei Montalva. Mm-hmm. He was um, a conservative, like Christian, social Christian ideology. He was following the Democratic Christian Party, and uh, he began the the popular promotion, as they call this movement of political uh, energy. Mm-hmm. That I, I, I mentioned this because this was a seed to I can see that grow and uh, and uh, became in the popular unity during the Allende's government and uh, you know that that came in a, a boiling mass participation in politics. So I want to mention that because uh, I don't want to lose with the leaders. So, um, you know, like, we always need to think about the, how the people decide their future. Right. Yeah, the conditions were bad. And, um, yeah, as I said before, Allende wasn't. So, so this was Eduardo Frey, right? F-R-E-I that you're speaking of in the, yes. in the Christian Democratic Party. Let me just ask you, or just to give this some context, is that sure. the United States, and this is what, I think it's important for the American public to know. We need to know what our government does around the world, and we're going to be focusing quite a bit on Chile tonight. But before, even before Allende won the presidency, mm-hmm. he was being undermined. The U.S. was supporting. There was a committee of 40, which is out of the U.S. government. And basically the 40 committee was a National Security Council entity that essentially supervised covert activities in the CIA. And it was led by Henry Kissinger for many years. And they they approved monies even before 1970. But they approved $300,000 on June 27th, 1970 for anti-Allende propaganda operations. And then in September of that same year, just a couple of months later after the June date, the Committee of 40 approved a bunch of money, a quarter million dollars for Ambassador Corey. He was at the embassy to use Mm -hmm. his influence on that October 24th congressional vote in order to keep the Popular Unity Party from coming to power. But there's just a number of these financial allocations approved by the Committee of 40. They approved, our government did another 25000 to support Christian Democratic candidates. $1.2 million was approved in January of 1971 after Allende was in power by the same Committee of 40 to actually purchase radio stations and newspapers to support municipal candidates and other political parties. Later that same year, just two months later in March of 1971, additional support for the Christian Democratic Party of 300,000. Can you imagine 
if a, a foreign government was donating that type of money to a political party in the United States, what type of brouhaha that would that would raise? And so I, the reason I bring this up is because in all, it was over several million dollars. And then in 71, they also approved to purchase a press for the Christian Democratic Party newspaper. This is, again, the Committee of 40. And so I bring this up because the CIA also funded a fascist group, Patria y Libertad, uh, uh-huh. and, and, and that was in April of 71. In July of 71, there was a constitutional amendment approved by the government of Salvador Allende to nationalize the copper industry, which was some three-fourths of Chile's foreign exchange. And you can begin to see why we were so against him. Whenever a country tries to take over its own resources and re-divert the profits and the incomes from those industries back into the people to uh, address poverty and, and, and the land reform programs that they were promoting, that is a huge red flag for the United States. The other thing I wanted to just mention just before I let you go on is that John McCone, he was a former CIA director at that time, but he was a consultant to the CIA by then, but he was also mm-hmm. director of IT&T. And IT&T was a huge yeah. corporation, right? The main holding corporation in Chile at that time. That's right. They owned all the telephone. I mean, they, they basically, this is the problem, is these poor countries, everything they have is owned by these multinational corporations. And when you finally have someone that's going to come to power to change all that, then there is this huge energy and expenditures to try to keep that from happening. And since it did happen, ultimately the coup was promoted. But again, can you tell us a little bit about the Popular Unity Party and and the strength that it had during those days? A little bit more about the, you know, the competing party that eventually did win the presidency in 1970. But before you do, Ricardo, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin, the premier community radio station of the nation. And this is Bringing Light into Darkness with your host, Pedro Gatos, and our guest, Ricardo Venegas, and we'll be back right after this. Don't touch that dial.